Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Jason Emanuel, and we will be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Elliot Abrams, a broadcast meteorologist who has had an illustrious 51-year career forecasting the weather. His most recent position being Senior Vice President at AccuWeather. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Elliot, what got you interested in meteorology? I think I got interested in uh, meteorology when I was five years old. I liked looking at the sky and kept asking questions about the weather. And I actually later learned that uh, after I gave a talk in Philadelphia, where they said that there was a thunderstorm outside the hospital when I was born, um, a man came up to me afterwards and said, I'm the only one here who can vouch for the fact that there was a thunderstorm outside the hospital that day. I delivered you. (laughs) But around age five. And did you start your career as a broadcast meteorologist, or had you had other roles before that? Well, uh, over the years, probably too many roles, but that's a different topic uh, of dieting. But in any case, uh, uh, I became, uh, I did some weather observing in fact, I uh, was a cooperative observer for what was then the U.S. Weather Bureau, now the National Weather Service, when I was a teenager. And my first uh, part-time job was at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, working for TV meteorologist Molly Canan. They had a, a weather display at the Institute. Mm-hmm. And could you give us a little bit of um, a background about your education and what you majored in? Education was in the Philadelphia school systems went to uh, Central High School in Philadelphia, which is a magnet school. I'm not exactly sure. At that wasn't exactly sure at that time what the attraction of that magnet was, but uh, I, wasn't made of, I wasn't made of iron either. So, but in any case, uh, the main thing that I knew that you had to stress was physics and math, because there was going to be a lot of that later on in college. And if you didn't get a good foundation in it, you really weren't going to be able to get into the field because you have to pass those courses. And uh, where did you end up um, going to school for your undergraduate degree? Went to Penn State University. It was actually the only place I applied to. And that started in March of 1965 and graduated in 69. And then I got a master's a few years later. And the topic of that was problems in the routine communication of weather information. Mm-hmm. Had your undergraduate degree been in just in meteorology or a different field? Meteorology. It was a fairly small department, but an illustrious one at the time. And mm-hmm. they were already doing some TV weather each night on in central Pennsylvania. And there, we also did some uh, radio work with some local stations that we volunteered for. Mm-hmm. And after you graduated, what opportunities did you pursue that you knew would be beneficial to securing a job as a broadcast meteorologist? When I was a junior, I was approached by Dr. Joel Myers, who had started a consulting service and forecasting service several years before, and he asked me if I'd like to work for him. And he said, I'm hard to work for, but I'm fair. And he was right. And I, uh, was the, I worked for him for 51 years. Oh, wow. So over those 51 years, you must have like seen the field change in many different ways. What, what are some sorts of the changes you've observed? One of the things early on was in terms of getting information. We didn't have high-speed computers or anything like that, and there were, were teletypes that looked like uh, sort of fast typewriters where the data would come in, 
There were no real graphics. You could get some radar pictures uh, by fax. And to make a uh, satellite a, a radar loop or a, a succession of pictures, you had to take these little four by four fax maps, paste them on a map corresponding roughly to the location uh, that you were looking at, and then do a series of those. And this took quite a bit of time. And the faxes weren't all that quick either, but mm -hmm. it was the only way you could do it. There was no uh, live radar. There were the satellite era was just beginning. We weren't getting very many satellite pictures. Right. And so it was a much more difficult thing to uh, come up with a precise forecast. Do you feel like the forecasting has become more accurate with the development of radar and satellite? I think it's become much more accurate. And the statistics all show that. We can, uh, a, today's five or six day forecast is uh, about as accurate as a three-day forecast was some years ago, right. but there are still some challenges. For example, if you wanted to ask a meteorologist, is it going to rain at two o'clock this Saturday afternoon because I have a picnic? Uh-uh. We're not going to be able to do that because sometimes those individual showers don't form until minutes before they arrive right. or they may change character. You may even be in a shower zone, but as everyone knows with scattered showers, if uh, if they don't aren't scattered right over you, you're not going to get them. Uh, some people believe in the idea of occasional rain. You plan an occasion. That's about rain. <laughs> How do you see the future job market for careers in broadcast meteorology? A, it's a hard forecast, but B, I've heard over a whole 50-year period worries that the job of the human meteorologist was going to go away. It was all going to be taken over by computers and that uh, there weren't going to be a lot of jobs. And yet, each year, I see the field expanding, more opportunities, not only in weather, but in climate and other uh, Earth-related sciences. And so I'm quite optimistic that the job market of the future will even be better than the job market has been in the past. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like broadcast meteorologists are expected to interact more or less with the public than they used to? It really depends. On some radio stations, there's less interaction. It really depends on the format of the station. Mm -hmm. And if the format of the station is conversational or it's all talk, then there's a lot of interaction. Otherwise, you feel more like an automaton sometimes, just reading a forecast and not really being sure if anyone's listening to it. Right, yeah. So uh, so you're a certified consulting meteorologist, or CCM. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to pursue that credential? We were doing not only radio forecasting, but we were talking to people about the upcoming weather and what to make of it. For example, if we were talking to a school district, what were the things that went into whether they decided to have school that day or whether it would have to close? For example, let's say we knew that it was going to start snowing at 9.30 or 10 in the morning and last until noon and be heaviest at 11. The schools could probably open. Anybody going, any uh, buses and things like that scheduled for late morning would be questionable. But the thing we wanted to stress at that point was don't just send the kids right home at 11 o'clock when the snow's the heaviest just because you're scared. We're certain it's going to end by the middle of the afternoon when school lets out. Right. And so that kind of consulting work, learning what to say in what situation and base it on science as much as possible, uh, led me to seek that designation. What's your, what was your typical day on the job like at AccuWeather? Well, the wake up was around... About 2.30, quarter of three in the morning. Whoa. And, well, <laughs> well, that was for 50 years. In fact, uh, these days I actually wake up at a quarter of five and go to a, 
uh, gym class four days a week at 5.30, and people look at me like I'm crazy. But uh, for, to me, that's uh, sleeping in. <laughs> but in any case, uh, I would get to the office around 3, and there would be a pretty large crew at that point, and we would just proceed to discuss and assess the current forecast that were out and what we believed was going to be happening and any highlights of particular storms that might be strong or questions that we had in the forecast, and then we would complete the forecast process. Now today, that forecast process is largely automated, but there are still weather discussions held around the clock. So we want to always see what, whether the forecasts are working out, what changes we can make to make them better, and what factors are coming into play that may change what we're thinking. Stubbornness is is fatal in, in weather forecasting. If you're stubborn, you're going to lose. Mm. So, how did it work um, with AccuWeather in terms of your radio broadcasts at like local stations? Because I remember hearing you on the Boston local station. Um, so, do do local stations and national stations hire AccuWeather to do the forecast for them? How does that work? Well, there are, curr- there are currently thousands of stations that use the service, and there are other services beh- besides AccuWeather. But the basic idea is that the station specifies what it's looking for, and then the meteorologist or meteorological organization fulfills that need. Sometimes it's just uh, making sure that there's a dedicated line for getting all the watches and warnings to them that we feed back through the, from the National Weather Service, or custom information, such as for sporting events or outdoor things like concerts and also the day-to-day forecast. So the way it would typically work is we would work it out that we were going to make several different forecasts for the local station in Boston, for example. We would make four or five recordings of the basic forecast, and then we would be live on the air every 20 to 30 minutes during a storm every 10 minutes and give frequent updates. And it was similar at many other news and talk operations around the country. There were other stations that where there was much more entertainment going on. And so, for example, uh, on the day that uh, Shakespeare uh, was born and died, uh, I might uh, talk about the weather being a midsummer night's dream, but <laughs> if the forecast was going to be wrong, it could be a comedy of errors, in which case all love's labor is lost. But the Merry Wives <laughs> of Windsor across from Detroit would be happy, but people living in Georgia and the Coriolanus would not. And the Merchant of Menace might be the same storm in both cases. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's, that's some quick stuff to come up with. That's so funny. Well, I, don't, I don't want to cause a tempest here. <laughs> so, I mean, what else, um, what other types of positions are there at AccuWeather? Is it, I mean, how many people does it employ? It must be huge, right? There's, there are somewhere between five and 600 right now in three, mm-hmm. at least three offices. And the IT department is now the biggest one. Uh, use of big data, aggregating large masses of data, making sure that it applies to a particular customer's need, and then making automated forecasts. The company can actually make an automated forecast for any spot on Earth, just putting in the latitude and longitude, and knowing the basic climate and altitude of that area, make a forecast. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be the very best forecast. Uh, In fact, uh, the AMS awarded one of our forecasts, uh, an award a couple of years ago, there was a situation in northwest Mexico where there was very heavy rain occurring, and our office in Wichita was responsible for issuing forecasts for railroads, and they assessed the possibility that there'd be a flood. And so they contacted the railroad and said that at milepost such and so, please stop the train 
have somebody get out, walk forward on the tracks, and make sure the tracks were still there. Mm-hmm. And they did that, and the tracks have been washed away. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. So, yes, that deserves an award. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, the kind of, that's the kind of thing that I think every meteorologist who goes into the field wants to do, save somebody's life or protect some property. It doesn't happen very often, but we're always trying. Mm-hmm. And, and are most of the positions like shift work positions where, you know, there ha- it has to be covered 24 hours, so people have to get up at three in the morning? Yes, there are round-the-clock shifts. Now, the, when I was in the Air National Guard in the early 70s, there were, I guess, progressive shifts. Uh, I think you worked something like from uh, 5 a.m. to 3 p.m., and then there was a, a 2 or 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., and then uh, uh, an overnight one in the wee hours of the morning, and that shifted every few days. Mm-hmm. I would have found that very difficult to do because oh, yeah. you never get, but, that, but that's what a lot of people in the National Weather Service do. Ours are, we try to have it for the same time, the same places. So if you're getting up at 1030 in the middle of the night and coming to work at 11 p.m., that's your regular schedule. Mm-hmm. You may not have much of a social life, but that is the schedule. Right. On the other hand, though, I, I like the fact that since I came in very early, I was home in the midday and afternoon hours. So when the kids came home, uh, that uh, I would you know be able to see them right after school. And my wife is a teacher, and they once asked uh, what your parents uh, did as their jobs. And our younger son said, well, my, my mom is a teacher. Mm-hmm. And what's your dad do? Well, he sleeps all day. <laughs> the, the answer to that, because I usually took my nap around two or three in the afternoon, might still be napping when he came home. But <laughs> he, he later learned that that wasn't the full story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it sounds like you had a broad range of responsibilities at your job. Did you have a favorite thing about your job? Favorite thing was just the fact that each day it was different. It's, it was never boring, and it, it still isn't in weather forecasting because each situation is different. Each day represents some opportunities and threats, and so uh, you're never you might be doing the same types of work, but the outcomes are totally different and. That makes the job much more interesting than what many people have when they do the exact same thing every day. So was was the early morning start time um, one of the most challenging things about your job, or were there other things that you found even more challenging than that? That was probably the most challenging, and but you don't really get used to that if you don't work a regular uh, schedule or a regular daytime schedule. But on the other hand, once you do get used to it, you probably are a bit sleep deprived, which isn't isn't the healthiest thing. But nonetheless, there's a, you get to talk to a lot of people around the country if you're in the radio business or TV, where you're talking to people at different stations and interacting with them, and you really feel like you're involved in the ongoing issues of the world. Mm-hmm. So it might be hard to pick just one thing, but looking back on your career, what was the most memorable experience in broadcasting? Most memorable experience was probably during Tropical Storm Agnes in 1972. We'd started the radio service a year or two before and only served a few stations. But here is this tropical storm coming up with a great deal of rain. And at the same time, a pool of cold air in the upper atmosphere had arrived from the west and the two were interacting so that the storm would stall. Uh, it might have been the Harvey of 1972, but the storm stalled over New York and Pennsylvania and Maryland and dropped 12 to 20 inches of rain across much of the area in a fairly short period of time. I never really saw it rain so hard for so long. 
and virtually every yeah. stream and river flooded. And one of the stations we served was in the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area of Pennsylvania. And first thing you had to learn about flood forecasting there, other than hydrology, was the fact that when they say the flood stage was 22 feet, well, that was along the natural course of the river. But there were various dikes that were had been built to hold back the river. And, for example, the one in Wilkes-Barre at that time was 37 feet. It's now a little bigger than that. But the idea was that with this kind of a storm, every river was going to flood, and you just had to get the word out. And it wasn't going to be a flash flood. It would come up fairly slowly, but when it would overflow, it would cover everything and create a real mess, and it cost billions of dollars. Man. So we were on the air every 15 minutes talking to the stations that were involved, and I had mm -hmm. uh, post-radio syndrome after that because it was it was stressful that day and night. Yeah, I'm sure. I can't even imagine. Was that the worst storm you had covered? Up, that, uh, up to that point, Jason, that was the worst storm, but there were others. There was in, in 1996, a major blizzard came up along the eastern seaboard. There were the blizzards of, and snowstorms of 1977-78 along the east coast. I always associated those with occurring the same winter that Saturday Night Fever was my favorite, favorite uh, movie at that time. And my wife and I took disco lessons, but not at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I think my nickname at that point was uh, John Revolting when I, I danced. <laughs> but in any case, the, uh, the storms, there was a whole series of storms came up the East Coast, and each one of them was different. But in January of 78, several of them started as snow and turned over to rain. And we kept saying, okay, it's going to snow heavily for a while, and then it'll rain. And sometimes people got the wrong idea about it, and it was probably our fault, because it would, it would snow at about two, three, four inches an hour. And if you do the math, if it does that for three or four hours, yeah. you're going to have a foot of snow on the ground. Mm -hmm. So who cares if it turns to rain after that? Nothing's moving at that point. Right. And so the, the concept when you hear, oh, snow turning to rain today, that sounds like a storm that isn't going to be that bad, when in fact everybody got stuck. Yeah. Is there anything you wish you had done differently in your career? There's so many things that uh, it's... I don't know, I could write a book about it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> That's one thing when people say, would you like to start your life over? It would really depend on whether you have to go through the same mistakes again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is there anything in particular that you would um, warn, you know, potential students who were going into broadcast meteorology to do differently than you did? One thing would be to watch your people skills. You want to always be a, as positive a person as you can to your coworkers and also anybody who might be a listener or a watcher on TV. And typically you can, people will do better work when they feel like they're encouraged and brought along rather than chastised for maybe a bad forecast. Everybody's going to make a bad forecast, but the, the idea would be coaching people so that the next time the situation comes up, one might do a better job. Right. I think that's really good advice. Um, so in addition to the CCM, did you pursue any other professional development opportunities to keep current in the field? Well, I also earned a uh, the TV and radio seals of approval at the time, which have now been pretty much supplanted by the uh, broadcast meteorologist certification. Mm -hmm. But I would give talks in various places around the country. One thing I began to become interested in was how the weather affected the Revolutionary War. And I've given several talks on how George Washington's knowledge of the weather actually helped him 
win the Battle of Princeton in 1777. Oh, wow. And what happened was they had just won the Battle of Trenton. They crossed the Delaware. Mm-hmm. When I talked to school groups, I said, you know, George Washington was so smart. How did he know that the best place to cross the Delaware River was Washington's Crossing? <laughs> and and depending on the age of the kids, they either get what I'm saying or, or, or laugh at it. But in any case, so there after they won the Battle of Trenton, they were trapped. And Cornwallis, the British general, was about to come in and probably capture them. And George Washington notices on this one January morning, it's at noon, it's 11, it's 37 degrees. He it was a Virginia farmer, and he had a thermometer, 37 degrees with a strong northwest wind. So he figured it would freeze that night. Now, the British would not think that because in Great Britain, uh, a northwest wind coming in off the Atlantic is not going to cause freezing at night, just as it wouldn't cause freezing in Seattle or Portland. But Washington knew that it would freeze, so he gathers the generals up, and they hatched a plan where they built bonfires during the afternoon to make it look like they were camping for the night. This would then discourage Cornwallis from traipsing through the mud to capture them that afternoon, figuring he could finish them off the next morning. As soon as the sun went down and the ground froze, they put cloth on all the wagon wheels and moved out after midnight, circled around and took the town of Princeton. And it was a stunning uh, defeat for the British because up to that point, the British had won all the battles from the time they landed near New York City and came across New Jersey. And it looked like the revolution was going to fail and the people who had participated in it could have been hanged for treason. Man. Very interesting. Um, what advice would you give students in early, early career professionals who are, you know, just graduated and they really want to pursue um, broadcast meteorology as a field? Is, is there, are there certain um, things that they should do, put on a resume, um, certain things that stations would look at um, that would set them apart from others? Well, the first thing is you want to join the American Meteorological Society because you'll find a lot of like-minded people who are do, want to do the same thing. And at the various meetings, you can get scientific information, meet people who are doing the same thing you are or doing, doing networking. And so it's a fantastic organization. Um, I, I even joined as an associate when I was in high school because I was excited about it. But uh, that, that, that's one thing. And as far as resumes are concerned, I am not the expert to talk about resumes because after I got my first job for 51 years, I didn't need a resume. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I would think that maybe presentation skills or, um, you know, taking public speaking courses or doing internships, um, you know, even if it wasn't paid experience, just experience in general would probably look favorably. Um, you know. that's, that's true. Well, the, actually, the woman who teaches the cycling class I go to at 530 in the morning on Monday and Wednesday is a, actually a teacher of, uh, of Shakespeare and Shakespearean plays. And uh, she was going to be doing an interview for NPR and asked me how she should prepare for it. And I said, well, just remember, you're going to be talking to people who are interested in your topic. And you want them to be more interested, so you're going to tell a story about what's happening, and you want to pace yourself and listen carefully for the questions. Now, I don't know if I'm following that too well for you right now, but basically try to follow the questions and and tell a story about what's happening so people become interested and, and follow along with you. Yeah, definitely. Um, so do you plan to stay a part of the meteorology community in your retirement? Just 
keep involved. I think so. I'm still doing some part-time work for AccuWeather, and Mm -hmm. I'm also on the CCM board right now and have a couple of exams to grade and looking forward to the the oral exam process at the AMS meeting. Mm -hmm. I also encourage people who go into the field that don't be daunted by this. If you're if you're a competent person, an honest person, you you can become a CCM quite easily, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's something else that you can put on that resume that you were making. Yeah. So, Elliot, we always ask our guests one last fun question at the end of each podcast. What is your favorite book? My favorite book was. Eleven twenty two sixty three by Stephen King, hmm. and most of his books, of course, are horror books, and I can't even watch the movies that are made because I just don't like watching that stuff. <laughs> but um, the reading it is is you know you're just looking at that page, and so, but this book was about the time leading up to the assassinated the assassination of President Kennedy, and and he takes you back into the 1950s and early 60s. And if, if you're of that age, um, it was fascinating. Now, of course, most people today are not anywhere near that age, and, and that's fantastic for them. But it's still interesting to hear, to be sort of transported back into a day-to-day living in, a, in another mm-hmm. time. Was it like an alternate history version of it, or was it just uh, more real? Well, it's alternate history, the, the, but because something changes in the outcome of the the final thing okay but it it seemed it seemed plausible the way he presented it Mm -hmm. and that part of the book represented just a small fraction of the of the total thing that went on it was just Mm -hmm. a fascinating story to read nice love to check it out well thanks so much for joining us elliot and sharing your work experiences well thank you and uh, just remember Uh, If today isn't a a bright and sunny day and you want sunny weather, at some time it will be in the future, and I hope it happens for you. (laughs) That's good to remember and keep in mind. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine.